this morning as we look at Titus, I kind of want us to think of just about generations for a moment. If you think about the generations that exist today, you think about the boomer generation. You think about what is often referred to as the buster generation. You think about the greatest generation. You think about millennials and Gen X, and we hear all this talk about multitudes of generations, don't we? And doesn't each generation like to point out the faults in the other generations? Right? Nobody necessarily in the moment wants to be just like their mom and dad's generation. And your own generation, those that often come behind, often seem even more worldly or more difficult, right? The popular thing today often deals with the millennial generation, right? And so they're the generation that I like to say that all the other generations gang up on, right? Now, it is because the millennial generation is the most defiled generation that has ever existed in the existence of our history, right? No, it's not. But we think of it that way. But the truth is that generations often follow the discipleship that's been given by the previous generation. That it only takes one to two generations to look backward and see the failure of the generation that you're in. The reason that young generations don't see failure is because they haven't watched what's coming behind yet. And what is coming behind is still yet to develop. The challenge is that each generation and each diversity that's pointed out actually allows for a segmentation of the church that God never intended. God intended for each generation to be a blessing to His church. Diversity of generation is actually not something to be celebrated within the church. but is to be actualized in the church. What does that mean? It means that each generation has been given a responsibility within Christ's church. And when we only look at each generation as being different, as something that is wrong, we will fail to be what God has called us to be. You might be 98 years old, and yet God has a dynamic purpose for you inside of His church. You might be 22 years old, and yet God has a dynamic purpose for you within His church. And what that purpose is not is to find a group of people who are your same age, who like the same things, that have the same number of kids, or maybe nearing retirement, 
but rather it is to develop relationships with one another across those generations. That true healthy discipleship is not about me finding a friend who is the same age as me or who's going through the same things as me, but true healthy discipleship is about my investment in others and their investment in me. Paul instructs Titus here in this passage. And he says here that this is the kind of discipleship that's beautiful. This is the beauty of Christ's church. He says in Titus 3 verse 10 at the end, so that everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. That when the church actually is in discipling relationships across generations, it's a beautiful thing that draws people to it. Think about this for a second. How does our world speak of community? Today, on Sunday morning, there are other churches taking place all over this county, and none of them have to do with God. Some are sitting outside on a baseball field right now. But every weekend, those families are together, centered around baseball. Sunday mornings in the fall, football communities are sitting around, huddled around. For others, it's farmers' markets. Community is built as people come together. But it fades. Because as life changes and their demographics change, it fades. But the church has a lasting relationship across generations that should last from birth until death. Because the unifier isn't sports or locally grown fruits, but the unifier is Jesus. And when friendships are forged between the 98-year-old and the 3-year-old and the 56-year-old and the 28-year-old and the 16-year-old and the 70-year-old, it lasts. And people don't get it. It's foreign to the world. Why? Because in the world, the kids are always relegated to the kids' table. Go to a local coffee shop in the morning. What do you see? A lot of retired PG&E guys sitting around. I mean, seriously. They've developed community with one another. And that's good. But wouldn't it be weird to walk in and see an age group of three or four guys that are in their 20s and three or four guys that are in their 50s and women at another table in their 50s and 20s and 70s? Isn't it unique? Isn't that something that's unique to the church? I mean, people's first reaction is, are you guys family? Kind of. Right? In Christ. It's a beautiful thing, and it's foreign to our world. Because generations typically are hostile to one another. And at the very best, cordial. But seldom deeply invested cross-generationally when it's not biologically family. 
Paul says here to Titus. In chapter 2, verse 1 through 8, let's read this together. Let's stand as we read this. Titus 2, verses 1 through 8. He says this. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we look at your word, May your word work in our lives. That God, that your word is affirmed as true. That those who oppose have nothing evil to say about us. And that your beauty is seen through your church. May we be the disciples that you've called us to be. And may it be through the beauty of your church, the glory of your church that the world sees the truth of the gospel. May we rejoice in the beautiful order that you've granted to your church through cross-generational discipleship. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, I do want to mention that I have nothing against PG&E workers who are retired having coffee. My father-in-law is one, right? And I value and appreciate and there are times and places for that but isn't it different when you look out and you see people across generations who are not bound by biological relationships interacting and being challenged and encouraged with one another it's an awesome thing at the heart of this passage is the idea that cross-generational relationships are vital to the disciple-making process within Christ church Cross-generational relationships are vital to the disciple-making process within Christ's church. Now, you'll notice on your notes, we gave you a wrong copy this morning. That's my bad. I printed it up early first and didn't let the others know that. And so you won't have to do a lot of writing this morning in those lines, but you can do some circling if you'd like. When we think of the church, it really is about the cross and how the cross makes disciples. And God uses all the relationships in his church to do his work within us. In verse 1, Paul begins by saying, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now this is kind of an interesting statement. It actually seems a bit out of place initially. Why would he start there and then go into these, these characteristics of older men and older women? Well, in reality, we could probably better translate this as teach what accords with sound doctrine. We could actually translate as according to or in harmony with true Christianity. So teach what is 
according to or in harmony with true Christianity. Now, why would he say that? Well, Paul has just gotten done talking about false teachers and those who are within the church that are looking to bring division. And in verse 16 of chapter 1, he says, They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So he's talking of these people who claim Christ, but their lives don't reflect it. And he's saying that those are the people within the body of Christ that actually bring destruction upon the body of Christ. That defile the name of Jesus. The ones who claim Christ, but don't live for Christ. I don't know how many of you are into the show Last Chance You. Anybody heard of that before? It's a Netflix series about junior colleges, junior college football. It's about players who were signed to Division I college football scholarships who, who have now failed in those areas or failed at Division I level because of grades or because of other trouble, and they are sent to a junior college. And it started out by looking at a series of a, a junior college in South Carolina that was focused on kind of taking these projects or these kids that were, that were considered to be lost and, and done with and how they were winning national championships. Now the series has continued, and I, I don't necessarily recommend watching it with children because the language is extremely rough. But in the first year, the coach that was talking or who was leading this football team in South Carolina, one of the things that he shares over and over is repeatedly his faith. When he gets onto the football field or he's out in practice, you'd never know that this man is a man of faith. Ever. Ever. It's creative. At the beginning of the second season, they play a tape of him. And after he was allowed to preview that first season before they went public to him, he went before his team and apologetically said, after watching myself on TV, something needs to change in my life. Because the man that I claim to be is not the man that I am. It's a powerful statement. It's a powerful man recognizing that his integrity does not line up with the faith that he proclaims. Many of us need that in our own lives, don't we, at times? But what he's talking about here is people who are characterized by a life that doesn't line up with the faith that they proclaim. William MacDonald puts it this way. He says, by their conduct, they denied the great truths of faith. He goes on to ultimately ask the question that we should all ask ourselves, which is, who can measure the damage to the Christian testimony by those who professed great sanctity but lived a lie? So Paul is dealing with this. And so we need to ask ourselves the same question. Are our lives reflective of sound doctrine? Do we simply talk the talk or do we actually walk the walk? You see, sound doctrine leads to right action. And this is why doctrine is important. 
It's to lead to right action. And so the instruction here from Paul to Titus is to teach the things in harmony with sound doctrine. It's through right understanding of the Scriptures that leads to right actions in all situations. And we need to recognize that bad theology hurts good people. Theology does matter. And why does it matter? Because if we fail to understand God's Word, and we fail to understand the appropriate context, our actions and advice will be wrong, and it will lead to further sin and compromise the witness of the church. James T. Draper, in his book, Live Up to Your Faith, said, we must make sure we base our lives upon the Word of God. If we want to know how our relationship should be, husband to wife, parent to child, employee to employer, friend to friend, then we should look in the Word, plain and simple. See, Christ desires to present His bride, the church, to a world as a demonstration of His purity. We are to be a reflection of His purity. His church is to reflect His glory, all of His glory. And as a part of that glory, it is His purity that is being seen. Unfortunately, within the body of Christ, knowledge has become an end in itself. We can know what God's Word says, but we choose not to apply it. We choose not to live by it. For others... We can find it very tempting and easy to say, well, gosh, if, if I'm not growing in Christ, well, maybe I can serve Christ. And we make distinctions. Wes Roberts and Glenn Marshall in their book, Reclaiming God's Original Intent for the Church, say this. They say churches have eventually seen themselves as local religious franchises competing, excuse me, competing in the religious marketplace for their market share. Consumers shop for their religious experience. Churches adapted by becoming marketers. The church also adopted a rational approach to theology and apologetics. Truth was now reduced to statements that could be devoid of any practical reality. Christians could believe the truth and argue for the truth without living for the truth. This is in part what Paul is dealing with. He's dealing with this idea that there are those professing faith whose lives don't follow it. Well, the truth is that sound doctrine is manifested both in spiritual growth and service. And God uses our relationship with others to grow us in sound doctrine and ultimately our relationship with Him. And this is healthy discipleship. We need one another. The greatest danger during the pandemic is not COVID. The greatest danger during the pandemic is that believers live in isolation. God never called us to be isolated. He called us to be in relationship with one another, to be strengthened by one another to be built up by one another, to be challenged by one another.
It's through cross-generational relationships in his church that we are able to teach, model, encourage, and expose the reality or lack thereof of the truth in our hearts. The, the gospel becomes attractive or unattractive to the world as they watch. So, our relationships within the body of Christ aren't just about my personal preferences. I need older men in my life. Women, you need older women in your life. Younger men, you need to respond to older godly men in your life. Younger women, you need to respond to older younger women in your life. And what we're not necessarily talking about here is age. That plays a part in it, but it's also talking about spiritually mature. We need the investment. And so disciple making involves each generation seeking to manifest sound doctrine in their lives. Disciple making involves each generation seeking to manifest sound doctrine in their lives. Notice what Paul begins with. He starts with older men. He says here, older men are to be Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So we need to start by remembering that discipleship not only occurs through what we say, but also by the way that we live. Discipleship is not simply an educational process. Discipleship is a living out of that sound doctrine. It's hearing the sound doctrine and responding to the sound doctrine, allowing Jesus to do the work in your own life as you submit to it. And so he says here, older men, here's what you're to be characterized by. He says sober-minded, that's clear-mindedness. The context actually speaks of not being given to lots of wine. They're to be dignified, meaning they take their responsibility serious. That means that when you look at the body of Christ, it's not to be one where you look at it and go, ah, somebody else will do it. It means that as God moves on your heart to disciple another person, another man, that you move, that you understand it, that you take it seriously, that you, you do the work for it. Think about sometimes how we approach Bible studies, right? Right? Because we're a society that's task-oriented, I don't want to raise of hands, but I want you to think about how often is your study, when you're going through a Bible study, is it actually spread out in a one of discipline over the course of a week or two as opposed to a rush to the end? For many of us, we've learned to do Bible studies the way that we do our homework, right? The night before it's due, when it's due at midnight. And then we wonder why God's not transforming us from the inside out.
As older men, we need to understand that our responsibility is to disciple younger men. One of many responsibilities that are given. It may be as a husband or as a dad. But we need to take that responsibility seriously. That's what it means by dignified. Older men are to be characterized by self-control and being sound in faith. What that means is godly wisdom. This is wisdom that doesn't say, I know what the Bible says, but. This is wisdom that says, I know what the Bible says, and here that is how that looks. They're characterized by love for others. That means that they're not grumpy all the time. This is a big one for me. Right? I'm a natural realist, which means that I'm probably 52% pessimist and 48% optimist, which sounds a whole lot more pessimistic than it is. Because it is. <laughs> right? Over time, God has made me an optimist. But that means that I begin to actually love others, right? I don't know who I would be apart from Jesus. I know who I was when I didn't have Jesus. I can't imagine if that had continued for another 25, 30 years. And then faithfulness. We're to be faithful. Older men are to be faithful. He moves into older women. And he says here in verse 3 through 4 what older women are to be characterized by. He says first in their reverent behavior. This is still dealing with, again, a commitment to the responsibilities that have been laid before them. They're not to be slanders, meaning they're to be mercy-oriented in their conversation. They're to be clear-minded, Bible says here, slave, not slaves to much wine. They're to have a commitment to righteousness. Teach what is good. And then, it says here in verse 4, so train the younger women. They're to lovingly encourage and admonish younger women. This flies in the face of an independent culture. When you hear the words come out of your mouth, when somebody's correcting sin in your life, and the words come out of your mouth, it's none of your business, know that what popped up was pride, and it is the body of Christ's business. Because the body of Christ cares more about your soul than it does about whether you like them or it should. It doesn't mean that we do that apart from the love. It doesn't mean that we do that apart from a gentleness or kindness, but it does mean that God has called us to be strengthened in the relationships with one another. Now he goes on to younger women. And he says here, younger women are to be characterized by a faithfulness for their husband. Now notice, he's not saying that older women are to be characterized by this as well. There's an assumption that they've already lived this out as younger women. In context here, what's really being dealt with is this idea of respecting their husbands. 
in our culture today, the culture has often demeaned husbands. We've pendulum swung. In the 60s, we, we had this kind of oppressive response towards women, and now we've moved to the other side where every man's a fool. Look at sitcoms, right? The husbands are the fun-loving guys looking to go out and be dumb and ridiculous. We've moved to a culture where men are devalued. In fact, they're not even given enough value to protect the life of a child created in part by them. There's to be a faithfulness towards your husband. There's to be a selfless love for children. There's to be self-control. Purity. Workers at home. We're not going to spend a lot of time diving into that today, but what does that mean? It means that God is pointing out here that there are complementary roles. It doesn't mean that all women are to be just homemakers. That's not what it's getting at. But it is to say that God has a plan for his family and the family is not to be left behind. Hospitality and submission to the spouse. What does that mean? Submission to the spouse is one of the, the most misused and misunderstood in Scripture. Watch a godly older woman come underneath her husband. It isn't what you think. It's not passivity, and it's certainly not blind passivity. Every day, each of us goes to work, and we submit to a boss. We offer our opinions, we offer our suggestions, we speak candidly and directly. Yesterday. That one I heard. It's perfectly timed. But that's the truth, right? The truth is that it's not what the world has created it to be. One of the things that we need to remember is the world is designed and created for God's glory. But through sin, it has been distorted not to push God's glory, but to bring destruction to it. So anything that violates God's creative order is pushing against His glory. And so when we allow the culture to define what God has already defined, we are allowing the defilement of God's name. If as Christians we could grab hold of this and look and say, gosh, there's models, this is what God is doing, He's bringing into our lives. We need to recognize that the culture is going to push against those things that speak to the beauty of God. When the railroads from the east and to the west were built together, and there's that famous picture where the, 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 true, the two railroads come together and meet in the middle, 
The fascinating part about that was they built from the west to the east and they still came together and connected beautifully. A husband and wife or a man and woman are designed to, to work complementary together. God has created them differently so that they fit perfectly. So, what else? The young women, now the young men. Now, this is key. He says that the young men here, it seems initially like this is a very short list. He says they're to be characterized by self-control. They're to be characterized by self-control. Now, with it, this idea here in verse 6 where he says to be self-controlled carries with the idea of sensibility. It means that they too are to take their responsibilities seriously. They're to love their wives as Christ loved the church. They're to train their children in the ways of the Lord. And then it moves into Titus's responsibility. Why? Because what Titus is saying here, or excuse me, what Paul is saying to Titus is that the elders themselves, as well as the older men, he's giving instructions to them within the, the confines of the church. He's telling women how to disciple younger women and how those younger women are to respond to the older women. And now he's saying, listen, older men... This is how you disciple younger women, men, and they're how they respond to you. And Titus, as the elder, here's how you're supposed to lead this. Now notice what he says to Titus here. He says, you show yourself in all respects to be a model. So if Titus is to teach the young men, and he is a young man, young men in general should be characterized by the characteristics of the one instructing and modeling. And that's true throughout the church. Elders within the church are to model that to all, to men and women. And so how does one encourage the manifestation of sound doctrine in one's life? Well, encouraging sound doctrine in one's life requires the modeling of four things that we see in this passage. What are we to model? The first is a love for Christ and others. A love for Christ and others. It says, show yourself here to be what? A model of good works. The good works derive for a love for one another. Do I love one another enough in here to disciple them or to be discipled by them? If you're going to have an impact on somebody else's life, you have to demonstrate that love to one another. If Doug is going to have an influence on Cannon's life, Cannon has to see Doug's love for others. If Becky is going to have an influence on Emma's life, she's going to have to see Becky's love for one another. Discipleship begins with a love for one another that shows itself in good works. It is the essence of obedience to God and His Word. 
Secondly, there's a commitment here or a modeling of faithfulness to God's word. See what it says? It says here that what happens as a result of this, it says, and in your teaching show integrity. So when you instruct, you are instructed in the word of God. I remember talking with a a church one time that was looking for a pastor. Some people that were part of their search committee. And every time that we had a discussion, I kept going back in the discussion to what the Word of God said. Now, you would think that this would be something that is out there, but I share this because it's really important that we understand this. I remember the one person looking at the other saying, I think, and they were dead serious. I I, I think that when we look for this person to shepherd our church, we need to find somebody who does what he does, which is go back to the Word of God for each decision. That may seem foreign, but that's what God is requiring of us as believers in Christ. We're to be faithful to God's Word. And a faithfulness to God's Word means that we continue to drive back to the principles of Scripture. When we're discipling one another, they see us driving back to the Scripture. Pushing back to the Scripture. Coming back to the Scripture. They don't want to hear what I have to say. They want to know what God has to say. The same is true in discipleship. You're not giving them your opinion. You're giving them God's word. There needs to be integrity in our teaching. See, godly wisdom is a key part of teaching, counsel, and discernment. We can't have discernment apart from God's word. Because it is in discernment, or it is in God's word, that we learn to discern what is right and true. What's the third thing that's being modeled then by Titus? The first is a love for Christ and others. The second is a faithfulness to God's word. The third is taking their responsibilities seriously. The third is taking their responsibilities seriously. Their Christ-given responsibilities or role are actually taken seriously. You want to have a positive impact in discipling others in their marriage? Demonstrate the hard things of marriage according to God's truth. It's easy to say, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church, and yet if nobody ever sees you sacrificing spiritually for your wife, it's not going to have any power. It's easy to say, yes, I respect my husband And that submission is right before the Lord. But if they never see you walking in that submission, that truth is being invalidated. If men, if you are called to train up children in the way of the Lord, but you refuse to do it, you're hurting the witness of Christ. Women, if you are called to walk in purity, but your lives are marked by defilement, by immorality, the witness of God is defiled. 
in, in each of our lives, we need to see that what we profess needs to line up with what we do. And taking our responsibility seriously means that then too, that if God has called me to invest in people who are not the same as me, whether it's age or skin color or anything, then I need to be demonstrating that as well. I worry today that as part of Christ's church, we have segmented out the responsibility so far We do evangelism, and we do discipleship, and we do fellowship, and what we forget is that they're all joined together. That God calls me to disciple, and He calls me to be an evangelist, and He calls me into fellowship with others. And that's part of this cross-generational discipleship, is we need that in our lives. And then finally, it says that they're sound in speech. We model it through our speech by speaking the truth in love. Not just in a confrontational manner, but in a loving, truthful manner. In a manner that when we are speaking to one another, our our speech is seasoned with salt. It's seasoned with salt. Ephesians 5, verse 3-5 through says, But... Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. He goes on and he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So how do we deal with this this aspect or tendency to move away from speaking that which is sound? We move to a spirit of thanksgiving in our own hearts. The greatest enemy to righteousness is discontent. When we are discontent, we will almost always move into sin. And we will find it in that sin which we most rejoice in. We need to be a people who are speaking the truth in love. Now, 1 Timothy 5, 1-2 says this, and I love this passage for this morning. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. What a fantastic verse. That that's how we're to deal with one another. That's how we're to encourage one another. And so it is, if you find yourself in a church where you are the singular generation, meaning maybe there's only five of you who are above 70 years old and everybody else is younger, rejoice. Look around and see that there are many to be discipled. On the other end, if you're the one who is younger looking around saying, there just aren't people my age, rejoice because you have many disciples ahead of you. I wish in my own life that in those early years of my walk with Christ, 
that I would have understood that I had an entire body in front of me that was designed to shape and work out God's grace in my life. Instead, what I wanted was something different. And what God did in my own life was to help me develop community with people who were younger and older. And over time, God used that to to work in me to see that and to develop those relationships. And now I can call people who are 15, 20, 30 years older than me great friends and people who are 20 and 15, 30 years younger than me great friends. Because I see God at work and I see the beautiful design of His church which is so contrary to the world. Finally, we're going to leave with this. What's the result of this beautiful discipleship or this cross-generational discipleship? It is beauty. Our lives, Christ's church, end up honoring and testifying to the truth of Christ. When we do this, the reality is that Christ's church honors and testifies to the truth of Christ. The world sees something different and we experience the truth of the scripture that every single person from Steve to Trent to Beth to Lucille to Ish to John to Marla to Jason to John to Wendy to Kevin to Linda to Michaela to Art and to Shayla the reality is we have a purpose that God has designed within us be building up his church in relationship with one another for his glory. And that is beautiful. There is no community apart from Christ's church whose beauty is enduring and eternal. May that be our prayer today on this Mother's Day. May we seek to be spiritual mothers and fathers. And may we allow ourselves to be discipled by spiritual mothers and fathers. And may we seek those relationships together. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the design of your church. We're grateful for the beauty of your church. God, thank you for those men and women who have run with us. Thank you for the older saints in Christ's church. God, in my own life, who have invested in me. Thank you for those older saints who continue to invest, who continue to listen to your call and respond And thank you, God, for those who are willing to be invested in. God, may that be our prayer this morning before you, that you would work in our hearts to seek out relationships of discipleship. That we would feel compelled to invest in one another. That one, we would feel compelled to teach those who are younger than us in the faith, to disciple those who are younger than us in faith. And Father, may we also be compelled to seek out those who are more mature than us in faith. And may we seek their wisdom and respond to your work in their lives. And we ask this in your name. Amen.